The scripture reading today is from Mark 6, 45 through 56. Hear the word of the Lord. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when the evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking out on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they saw it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they saw saw him and they were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored on the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the region and began to bring the sick people on their beds wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they lay the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment. And as many touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jeanette. Well, good morning. My name's Casey, if I have not met you yet. I'm one of the pastors here, pastor of Connection and Care, and glad to be with you this morning. She's one of the most famous people in the world. Yet the Queen of England's former bodyguard revealed in an interview that even a woman with such notoriety can go unnoticed. Richard Griffin, the Queen's uh, personal bodyguard, worked with the royal family for over 30 years, and he recounts a time where she was walking uh, in the Balmoral Castle Estates in Scotland. And she was dressed in a common tweed jacket and a headscarf. And a group of American tourists came up to her to talk to her. And they failed to realize who she really was. And so they went up to her and they asked her this. She said, hey, excuse me, madam, do you live around here? To which she replied, well, I have a house nearby, <laughs> more like a castle. But, uh, and then they asked her if she had ever met the queen herself. To, and she replied very simply, I'm sorry, no, I haven't, but this man has. And she pointed to her bodyguard who was standing next to her. <laughs> the queen was completely unrecognizable to the tourists because they didn't know who she was. See, the queen didn't want to be found out. But when she does, she makes it very easy to be done so. So what she does is she she wears colorful suits and a colorful hat. Uh, The Countess Sophie of Wessex explains this in, in the Queen's Method. She says it this way. Don't forget that when the Queen turns up somewhere, the crowds are two, four, ten, even 15 people deep. They all want to say that they saw the Queen or at least a bit of her hat as she goes past. See, it's the queen that wants to be seen. And when she wears these colorful suits and hats, she gets noticed. Now, in this passage today, we see that Jesus wants to be seen, right? And he's not wearing a tweed jacket or a scarf over his head. He's not wearing a colorful suit or a hat. No, he's doing something way more amazing. He's walking on water. And how do the disciples respond? They don't know who he is. 
they consider him to be a ghost because they were so uncertain of his identity. And time and time again, Jesus is patiently revealing to his disciples who he is. And time and time again, the disciples are failing to realize who he is as the promised Messiah. And if we're honest with ourselves, we too, quite often, fail to see who the real Jesus is in our lives. For some of you, Christianity may be new. I came to know the Lord when I was 23. And you might be struggling to say, hey, is this thing real? Is this really worth my time? Or maybe you believe in an incomplete version of Jesus where you're like, hey, you know, I, I, I see this Jesus, but I, I kind of like him this way. But the problem is your, your paper tissue theology burns up in any heat of adversity when it comes. Or perhaps you once had a vibrant relationship with Jesus. But over the last several years, there's been this spiritual dryness in your life. And you're wondering, is Jesus really who I think he is? Many of us have forgotten who the real Jesus is. But wherever we are in our walk, the gospel of Mark takes us through this journey yet again, through his words. And it's the disciples' journey with Jesus. See, the disciples, too, are befuddled with Christ's identity. And in this gospel, nowhere does Mark give an answer to his disciples or to us, to the reader. Why does he do this? Well, he wants us to experience the way the disciples experience Jesus, to make a decision for ourselves. And my hope is when we ask the question, who is Jesus, this passage will show us that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised deliverer, and so we must seek him in all areas of our lives. So who's Jesus? Well, this, this scripture says that Jesus is our high priest, he's our king, and he's our prophet. So let's dig into this. First, Jesus is our high priest. And you remember from last week, uh, Jesus had just performed a miracle. He had taken a crowd and fed 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two fish. And Jesus then, right afterwards, in verse 45, it says that Jesus makes his disciples get into the boat. Now, in John's gospel, it tells the account that Jesus had seen the mob, the crowd of people, and realized that they were about to make him king. And so he pushes his disciples into a boat. It actually says... He made them, which is an intense version of very strong language. He forced them into the boat to get them out of there. Why? He was afraid the disciples were going to do the same thing to crown him king. So Jesus breaks up this party. He makes them leave. I kind of envision it like every day when I'm trying to get out of the house with my kids and I'm trying to push the kids into the car and they're struggling because they might not want to go where we're going. Well, this is the way Jesus is doing it. He's pushing the disciples into the boat. And I almost feel like he's pushing the boat off the shore at the same time. And they're going out to their four-mile journey to Bethsaida. But the disciples sail away and quickly find out that they themselves are in trouble. And this is in such contrast to what they had just been doing. They were just working side by side with Jesus he had performed a miracle, and here they are passing out the bread and the fish and working side by side with Jesus to advance the kingdom. And it was beautiful just a few hours earlier, but then now they are stuck in a boat for hours upon hours, pushed out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in the middle of a storm. And here's the thing that I want you to hear. They are in trouble not because they disobeyed Christ, 
but because they obeyed him. Now, it would make sense if they disobeyed Christ. And like Jonah, in his uh, story, they were being punished for disobedience. Like Jonah was in a storm because God was saying, hey, this is judgment for your wrong choice. But yet, what they're doing is they're doing what Jesus said, and here they are in trouble because of it. But here's what's interesting about Christianity. If you ever desire to be a follower of Jesus, I can guarantee you this much. You will experience more trouble following Christ's commands. You will experience more trouble following Christ's commands. Why? Well, John 16 says it clearly. In this world, you'll have tribulation. And 2 Timothy says that all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Many times, the life of a Christian will be harder than those who don't commit themselves to God. Your life will be harder following Christ's commands than it will be without it. And this reality blows up the prosperity gospel. I don't know if you're familiar with the prosperity gospel, but the prosperity gospel is this, that God wants to make you healthy and wealthy and happy. All you need is faith. But that doesn't explain the suffering, the troubles that we face as Christians Get this, over 50% of self-proclaimed Christians in the United States, this is one out of two people, believe that God gives material wealth to those who just have enough faith. But this belief system fails. How can you love God and experience trouble? How do you explain persecution of the Christians in the world with this prosperity gospel? How can you explain when someone you love gets sick and you pray that they're healed and they don't? This paper-thin theology of Jesus doesn't hold up. It can hurt people. There's a family I knew uh, that had five kids, and the mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. And uh, the, the family was told by a pastor. This is what makes it really hard. The family was told by a pastor that if they just believed that their mother would be healed, then she would receive healing from Jesus. And so they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. And they had hands laid on her, and, and sure enough, this mother, after two years of fighting this disease, she lost her fight and died. And it rocked the family because they couldn't reconcile the fact that they believed she would be healed and she was not healed. And the worst part about it was that they thought it was their fault because they had heard that Jesus only rewards people that have enough faith. And a couple of the kids even walked away from the faith for a season because they thought her mother, their mother's death was their fault. Who do you see Jesus as in times of trouble? Do you question his goodness? Do you see him as a loving savior when you're hurting? Do you think, Jesus, if he really loved me, would he allow this to happen? Would he ever let me go through something so hard? What's your view of Jesus? Who is he? The reality is, is that we must seek Christ even in times of trouble, and have faith in him. Now, getting back to the story, the disciples are struggling with these similar questions. They're, they've been in the boat for seven or eight hours, and they're saying, we did everything Jesus asked us to do. Why did he send us out here? Why did he put us into the storm? We were being obedient, weren't we? Has Jesus, for, Jesus forgotten us? Doesn't he care? Well, we know in this passage that Jesus does care. If you go to verse 48... It says, where is Jesus? Jesus is up on a mountain. Well, what's he doing? He is praying 
for his disciples. See, he's interceding for his disciples as they head into trouble. Their high priest, the Lord incarnate, is calling to their heavenly father, praying on their behalf. Father, look after them for me. Take care of them. Make sure none of them fall out of the boat. None of them drown. Lord, it is okay if they get wet or they're troubled. Let the wind blow in their face and let the boat rock. Even make them queasy, for they need to be tested. But Lord, do not let go of them, for they are mine. As their high priest, Jesus is above these people low in the Sea of Galilee, struggling. Just like our Heavenly Father is high in heaven now, to this very day, interceding for us who are down here on earth, struggling with the things of this world. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 that Jesus is our high priest sitting high in heaven at the right hand of God, praying for us by name, pleading before the Father's throne. When we're in trouble, we might not see Jesus in action, but he is most assuredly in action for you. He is praying for you and for your behalf. He's not only praying for us, he also sees our need and comes to us. Look back in verse 48, it says this, And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Now, did Jesus physically see the disciples? I mean, it was three or four miles out to the, the center of the lake, perhaps. I mean, Jesus is the Son of God, right? I mean, he could do what he wants. Or perhaps what he was doing was he was spiritually watching his disciples. Now, why would he be focused on them? Because they were being obedient to him. Jesus watches his disciples, much like he watches those today who are struggling with something right now here on this earth. And we can be comforted knowing that he watches us in our need. His eyes are fixed on you who are obedient to his commands. He is our high priest. He sees your need. He intercedes for us, but he also comes to us. And it isn't always our timing. You know, we could be in a, in a time of trial and we're thinking, Lord, where are you? Why are you not here? Don't you see me in my pain? And yet we know that he will come to us in his timing when he sees it fit to do the right thing for us. And so we obey Christ, yet we will be in trouble, yet our high priest intercedes for us, sees our need, and comes to us. So Jesus is our high priest, but he's also our high king. Now, how is he our high king? Well, he's first our king of glory. Now, we had Palm Sunday just a few weeks ago. And if you remember Palm Sunday is when Jesus goes into Jerusalem and he gets uh, heralded by the group of people. And they're all cheering for him. And one of the things they say to him is Psalm 24, and it says this. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, The Lord, mighty in battle, Jesus is the king of glory. And he reveals this in a a certain interesting way. Back to verse 48, it says this, And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Wait a sec. All right, he, he came to them, or he meant to pass by them. Which one is it? He's either coming towards me, or he's passing by me. But Jesus did mean to pass by them. And he could have done it far away where they didn't see him, but he chose to pass by them where they could see them. Now, why? Why would Jesus pass by? Well, he's answering the disciples' question from Mark 4 when he calmed the sea and they asked this, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? If you look back to the Old 
Old Testament passages that connect with this passage. It echoes through Moses in Exodus 33 where the Lord's glory passed by him. Or Elijah in 1 Kings 19 where the, the glory of the Lord passes by Elijah. And Mark is deliberately drawing our attention to who Jesus is by this passage. Because there's only one person that passes by Moses. There's only one person that passes by Elijah in this context, the disciples. It's the Jehovah Jesus, the, the Yahweh Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus' glory. It's basically showing us and showing the reader that Jesus is Lord. He is Messiah. And he is passing by these disciples just as he did for so many others in Scripture. So he is the king of glory. He's also the king over creation. In the passage before it, it talks about how Jesus multiplied five loaves and two fishes for a multitude of people. Why? How? Because he's the king over creation. He didn't bake a whole bunch of bread. He didn't perform an ethical miracle that uh, convinced people to share their lunches. No, he actually multiplied something from nothing. And Jesus is king over his creation, so he can do this. And how do the disciples see him? Well, they still respond in a way that shows that they're clueless to who he is. They're seemingly incurious about what it all means. And so then Jesus does it. In verse 48, it says this. It takes it to the next level. It says, Jesus came to the disciples walking on water. Wait, he's actually walking on water? I mean, that's amazing. I've heard some scholars say, well, he couldn't have actually walked on water. Maybe he was walking beside the water, and that's how we should translate it. But the problem is it doesn't doesn't show us about all the other miracles he performed leading up to this. Or perhaps Jesus was finding a really shallow part of the lake and he was walking on a sandbar. That's what it is. I've heard scholars say that, but the problem with that is, is that the disciples are actually in the middle of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, as, as the account of Matthew says. So there's no way they could have a sandbar in the middle of the lake. So Jesus is actually performing a miracle. Now this is problematic because the reality is For some of us, it's easy to understand Jesus' teaching. It's easy to understand that we should be good to others and love God. But it's these miracles that hang us up. There's no way this could be true. But the reality is there's a different question that needs to be asked. It's not whether or not these miracles are true. It's who do you see Jesus is? Because if you see him as really the son of God, if he really created the earth, he created all of us, he created water, well, then it makes total sense. That he would have the water molecules change so they could support his weight. Because after all, water freezes at a particular temperature because he made it that way. And water boils at a particular temperature because he made it that way as well. And so if Jesus really is the Son of God, which is the greater question, then it makes total sense. We shouldn't be surprised that he can suspend himself over a surface of a body of water. But if this isn't true, then like the Apostle Paul says, we of all people are the most pitied. What our theology of Jesus is determines whether or not we think Jesus actually walked on water. My wife and I recently watched the movie The Case for Christ, which is a dramatization of Lee Strobel, and, uh, who is a hard-driving investigative journalist and atheist whose wife becomes a Christian. And so he does what every husband should do, not do, uh, he goes to prove her wrong. 
And he spends all of his efforts as uh, a lawyer and an, an investigative reporter to try to prove his wife wrong so he could save their marriage. A little bit of iron, ironicy or irony there, right? So try to say that again. Uh, so he walks with these Christians and non-Christian historians. He walks with these archaeologists and he walks with all these people and he interviews them and asks them questions. And he really wants to figure out the verifiability of the Bible. And he comes to conclude this, that the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents that were written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And they report supernatural events in fulfillment of specific Old Testament prophecies. And so what happens? Lee Strobel becomes a Christian. He starts to believe in the very things that he doubted. And he discussed a key to the strengthening of his faith. He says this, if I had stopped asking questions, then I would have remained there, stuck. So do you have questions regarding the validity of Christ or his miracles? You're normal. That's good. Here's where you can go wrong. If you have those questions and yet you leave them there, that's when you'll get into trouble. Because if you don't seek out answers, if you don't investigate the truth, your doubts will grow into unbelief. So if you have questions, seek them out. Find someone who's farther along in the faith. Come talk to us. Come talk to people that know Jesus and ask those questions. We'd love to help you find out the answers. So who's Jesus? Well, he's our high priest. And he's our king. He's king over glory and he's king over creation. And lastly, he is our prophet. The word prophet in scripture meant somebody who speaks on behalf of God. And so up to this point, Jesus hasn't spoken a word, right? He has just shown them. He's just passed by the disciples in the boat. But now he's on the tell part of show and tell. And he tells his disciples that he is God. If you look at verse 50, it says this, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. But the truest, most literal translation is this, Courage, I am. Fear not. Now, you can see that this statement is loaded. He says literally, I am to his disciples. Now, why is this so important? Well, it could just be that he's just making a statement of identification. Yeah, just want you to know it's me. Or which is more likely, uh, he alludes to the revelation formula of God. And he says, I am. Which are the same words that God uses to reveal himself to Moses in the burning bush, I am. Or Isaiah, about the, the Messiah. It says, I am he who blots out your transgressions. Or Isaiah 48, I am he, I am the last. I am the first and the last. Or better yet, Isaiah 51, and listen to the, the, how he talks about the water in this verse as well. Who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? I. I am. He who comforts you. I am the Lord, your God, who stirs up the seas so that its waves roar. John tells of his seven I am statements in his gospel as well. Jesus is showing his authority that he is God by his words, by just telling people his holy name. So he says his holy name, and then what does he do right afterwards? Like a prophet, he brings life through his words. Jesus says, do not be afraid, and he's comforting his people with his word. 
Many of you know uh, or knew Beverly Payne. She was a longtime member here at Christ Community. And she served so many members here. She served so many at Christ Pres Academy. She loved people in so many different ministries. And I learned so much from so many people after she had passed. And I went to visit her a week before she died. And I was talking to her in the hospital room. And we were talking about books. And we were talking about her family. And we were talking about the hard news she had gotten that she didn't have long to live. And she asked me to read about heaven. So I opened up Revelation 21 and I started reading about the promises of heaven, how there'll be no more pain, no more sickness, no more death, no more tears, no more sadness. And she just sits there in her hospital bed and is quiet. Tears are streaming down her face. And after a while, I broke the silence and said, Beverly, what are you thinking? And she says, I'm just thinking about heaven because I know these words are true. And what it says about heaven is real because God doesn't lie. People who are deeply intimate with God's word, I've seen this time and time again, people who are seeped into God's word daily, they're different because they just have a presence of the Holy Spirit that we only dream of. It's like they're like Jesus where the waves are rocky in our lives But they're walking over them because they just seem to have a peace that only the Holy Spirit can give. We need to seek Jesus in his word. Why? Because we need that peace in times of storm. So where do we go from here? Well, Mark doesn't give us an answer, right? He takes us through this account of the disciples getting into the boat, disciples having trouble, and how... Uh, Jesus was interceding for them and then how Jesus came to them and how he sees their need. And then it shows how Jesus is the king over creation. He could walk on water. And then we see how Jesus spoke those words of life to them. And how did the disciples respond? It says their hearts were hardened because they didn't understand. Now, why would Mark give us that downer at the end of this account? He wanted us to see the disciples in their struggle. That the disciples didn't get it. They would later, but they didn't get it now. Because they didn't see who Jesus really was. And Mark does that because he doesn't want us to make the same mistake as the disciples. He wants us to see the faithfulness of God as our high priest, as our king, as our prophet, And make a decision for ourselves, which I challenge you all to make a decision today. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he in your trouble? Who is he in times of question or doubt? And who is he in his word? Because I'll tell you, just like as he got into the boat for his disciples and patiently taught them time and time again, he will patiently teach you about who he is and his faithfulness because he loves you. And because he's worth it, I encourage you to listen, to pray to him, to ask those questions and to seek him because he will not fail. His word is true and he will always love you. He is our priest. He is our king and he is our prophet. Let's pray.